Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Thirdly, I want to give a huge shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Athlete Concepts. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation educational material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus 360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. Hey guys, just before I introduce today's guest, I want to bring it to your awareness that the Irish Strength Institute will be hosting their annual symposium on the 28th and 29th of July at the Grand Hotel in Malahide in Dublin, Ireland. Now, the lineup that the ISI team put together for this symposium is absolutely outstanding. Some of the speakers that will be presenting at the symposium will be Dr. Eric Serrano, Dr. Ken Kanakin, the founder of the Swiss Conference, Victoria Felker, Alexandro Ferretti, as well as legendary coach Ismen Javor. Yes, the godfather of barbell complexes, as well as a host of other outstanding speakers that you can find out about when you go to the registration page. Now, as listeners of this podcast, the ISI is offering you guys a 50 euro discount when you register for the event. The link along with the discount code and all of the event details will be linked up in the show notes. Thanks, guys. This episode's guest is Mike Tashir from Reactive Training Systems. Mike is back on for his third time on the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. Mike has previously been on the podcast in episodes 57 and 113, which are linked up in the show notes. On this episode, Mike and I discussed many topics, including 
my master's physiology essay assignment, which was titled The Physiological Adaptations and Determinants of Maximal Strength Development in Powerlifters. Yep, that was a mouthful. But anyway, I asked Mike for his input and his thoughts around this essay and the determinants of maximal strength development and how one would try to overcome these limiting factors. Here me and Mike discuss about intra and intramuscular coordination, neural inhibition, the stress shortening cycle, hypertrophy, nutrition, drugs and programming as determinants of maximal strength development. Mike gets into an extensive in-depth discussion on how he has utilized Dr. Bondarchuk's training system with his powerlifting athletes. Mike talks about how the human organism is a non-linear entity and how this impacts adaptation. Mike discusses the responder types he has seen with using this Bondarchuk model. Mike tells us his thoughts on using a Bondarchuk approach with a beginner. Mike talks about Liz Craven's experience using the Bondarchuk model for the first time. Mike discusses how he designs his washout or what he calls pivot blocks within the system. Mike tells us how he programs Bondarchuk's four exercise classifications within the microcycle. Mike talks about how important it is to build trust with your athletes. And finally, Mike tells us what resources he was looking into at the time of this recording. Guys, this was an outstanding episode with Mike and I hope you really enjoy it. Mike to share. It is an absolute pleasure to have you come back on the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. This is your third time on the podcast, um, so that just tells you how much uh, how much I really uh, appreciate yeah. uh, appreciate your time and appreciate your uh, your opinions and your viewpoints on uh, everything that we're going to discuss about today and everything we discussed about previously. So, Mike, thanks a minute for coming back on. Well, thanks for having me. I love to listen to the podcast and and to. You know, sit and have a conversation with you is, is always a treat. So I'm yeah. glad to be here. Brilliant. So, so this is going to be a really interesting uh, podcast because for the listeners, uh, I, I shoot, uh, I, I shot, I should say, I shot an email over to Mike regarding an assignment that I'm currently working on for my master's. Um, and the title of the uh, essay assignment is The Physiological Adaptations and Determinants of Maximal Strength Development in Powerlifters. And essentially what I uh, wanted to get Mike's take on was sort of the outlay of the essay, which I'll go through now, and sort of his thoughts. So basically there's going to be an introduction. as four parts. Introduction, adaptations to strength training, the determinant factors, or you could also say the limiting factors to maximum strength development, which is where I might kind of uh, get a bit of his viewpoints on. And then the final part is proposed potential training methods to overcome the aforementioned determinants or limiting factors that we're going to, we're going to speak about. So I suppose if we, uh, I'll just briefly cover a few things, Mike, and then I'll, I'll ask you a question and you can hop in. So sure. in terms of the introduction, what I got to do here is define maximal strength, which which I which I have a definition for it. And, um, and actually, I need to I can even pull up the essay maybe and, and look through it. But anyway, so in the introduction, I have to define maximal strength. I got to define what powerlifting is as a sport uh, and just give the basic rules of it. So that's all basic enough stuff. Um, introduce the concepts then uh, of the determinants of maximum strength development and the ongoing research in this area and some of the hypotheses that we're going to discuss about and then conclude uh, the essay then with potential training means and methods to overcome these determinants. So as I was saying to you offline, the adaptations is pretty cut and dry. I mean, you know, basically just going through some textbooks and some research articles. Basically with adaptations, strength training, and always, most research you look at breaks it into neurological and morphological adaptations. Um, and then the determinants then, which we're going to talk on now, so there's two groups or two categories in terms of non-modifiable 
uh, and modifiable under the non-modifiable under under the non-modifiable category we have things like genetics age sex levers uh, so things like your anthropometrics origin assertion size etc but modifiable which is where we're going to start here now are things like uh, neural factors intramuscular coordination intramuscular coordination neural inhibition so uh, dampening down the uh, inhibition of the doggy tendon organs and muscle spindles as protective mechanisms stress shortening cycle is one an area hypertrophy is obviously going to be one of the biggest areas Fiber type transition, pination angle in the fibers, nutrition as an acute factor, equipment, depending if it's raw, geared, or even if it's even if it's raw, it could be belts and wraps and stuff. Drugs is obviously a factor we have to talk about, and then program design organization. So, Mike, uh, I suppose if we get into these uh, limiting factors and then the modifiable factors that we could potentially change, how would you think uh, you would go about doing this? Hmm. <laughs> that's a that's a that's really broad. <laughs> yeah, it, it is broad. Well, let, let, let's maybe let's maybe take one. So again, the, sure. I, I, you might you, you might have other things that you might add to this as well. So for me, yeah. for for the modifiable factors, um, in terms of of getting stronger, uh, neural ones are number one. So we're looking at intramuscular coordination, intramuscular coordination. So basically, for right. for for people who are listening, intramuscular coordination mm-hmm. is improved by recruiting more motor units. Recruiting them faster is what's called your rate coding, and then also synchronization. Now, there's some debate whether synchronization actually increases force, and actually it, it doesn't increase force, but it, it's it's been linked to increasing rate of force development, which then in in turn could potentially increase your force output. But uh, intramuscular coordination then is three parts: it's motor unit recruitment, rate of coding, which is how fast you can turn those motor recruitments on, those motor units on, and then synchronization. Um, and then intramuscular coordination then is the other neural factor, which is agonist-antagonist relationships. So, you know, when we're bench pressing, we want to be able to have the agonist muscle groups, which would generally be, you know, your pecs, your delts, your triceps, with the fire as often as possible, while the antagonist muscles, not that we want them off, but we want them kind of just in that, like, perfect zone where they won't inhibit the agonist so much in our force output, but they also won't switch off so much if they leave the, the, the joints up to too much instability. And then finally, neural inhibition will be the last neural thing, which is Galway tendon organs and muscle spindle uh, inhibition um, right. on force output. So would, would you agree with those being how, like, I suppose, oh, yeah. how modifiable would you think they are? And I suppose like anything that we were saying offline, I mean, the more elite the athlete becomes or the lifter becomes, like the less and less diminishing returns we're going to get to try to, to target these things. Um, but uh, yeah, well, let's just start with those neural factors. How... How trainable or, or, or how much like how much emphasis would you put on that stuff? I suppose again, I'm nearly answering this myself, but it obviously would be different for a beginner where it's very trainable to someone who's getting like to a plain summer level. Sure, sure, yeah. Well, I mean, my my perception of it is that um, they're quite modifiable. Um, how's that for a, a specific terminology? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it. I mean, if you if you look at, I don't know, the differences between beginner and, and elite uh, lifters, even of, uh, you know, of similar uh, lean body mass and muscle cross-sectional area, things like that, you see, you know, huge disparities in, in strength, or at least that's my perception, you know. Um, so I, I would assume that the, you know, the neural qualities, um, 
are major contributors to strength. Mm. Um, that at least that's the way it, it looks from where I sit. Now at the same time, I tend to focus myself on more of the pragmatic level, I suppose that, you know, if I do X and the lifter gets stronger, then it doesn't matter so much whether they got stronger because their cross-sectional area improved or, uh, you know, they improved some neural factors. I mean, outside of things like weight class considerations and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. but, you know, the, you, hopefully this isn't, you know, too far off from the direction that you want to go. Um, there was a book that I picked up some years ago uh, called Adaptation in Sport Training. Veru, Arku Veru, the Estonian researcher. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's very dense, <laughs> which is about all I can say about the book itself. Um, but I picked it up on the recommendation uh, from Landon Evans and uh, uh, Mark McLaughlin. Mark, Mark McLaughlin, yeah. Yeah. Um, just kind of talking to those guys about um, adaptations, you know, adaptations from from lifting weights, basically, uh, they take it into a lot more detail than, uh, you know, than, you know, the common, uh, areas that we tend to quantify it, you know, as far as neural factors and, and morphological factors where we focus on the muscles themselves, you know, like they're, those guys are talking about, uh, capillarization and, um, hormonal responses and things like that. And, and I mean, that's a totally different conversation on whether or not those things matter too much to a power lifter. And, you know, maybe they don't, but it's, it's interesting that those are potential effects of training with weights that go far beyond the things that at least power lifters think of most often, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, in in this too, I, I I will be looking into endocrine, metabolic, cardiovascular, and immune responses to the adaptation. So, there are things, and it's funny too because in the research, under morphological, some papers will lump endocrine, metabolic, and cardiovascular in there. And I had yeah. this, I had I actually had this question for Brian Mann. I was like, you know, all right, cardiovascular, yeah, is morphological because there is heart changes from 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 strength training. Your heart can morphologically change in terms of left ventricle actually the walls of left ventricle get thicker whereas mm -hmm. you know yeah so that's concentric left ventricular hypertrophy whereas eccentric left ventricular hypertrophy comes more so from endurance type activities where the diameter gets bigger so that that's that, that is one adaptation from uh, resistance training or, or heavy strength training because of the high blood pressures um but then like in things like like endocrine i was like is endocrine really more because morphological means something changed like a structure change like Sure. With endocrine, like nothing actually structurally changes. Now more receptor sites can get on the cell, so technically there is there that can be a structural change to like the cell membrane. But um, yeah. me metabolic, then yeah, there there is a bit of like structurally metabolic capillaries. So it's funny uh, a lot of the research. Not that it's funny. This makes sense, but they're saying like a lot of research where it's high intensity, low volume, like weightlifting and powerlifting. There's a decrease in the ratio of muscle mass to capillary capillarization, which would make sense. But they're saying actually bodybuilders actually show show uh, uh, an increase oftentimes because of their higher volumes of training. So they nearly get like an almost endurance type peripheral adaptation that the, their polarization either doesn't change or it actually increases slightly. Um, so that, that's one thing. And maybe if you're thinking in terms then of like getting blood flow into joints and tissues and recovery, you know, like you look a lot of 
a lot of programs where they program a lot of maybe quote unquote more bodybuilding stuff. And I'm talking about parenting programs specifically, but they put in some of that bodybuilding stuff as that auxiliary stuff. And maybe that's why too it's important, not only from just you know muscle mass perspective, but even just getting blood into the joints at the end to help recover yeah. for the next session. So yeah, there's just yeah. th- th- things like that. But um, anyway, so yeah, we're we're kind of staring off here. Uh, I, I suppose maybe <laughs> I, I'll I'll keep this more to where you feel sure. your your expertise is going to be. Um, so again, I was just asking your opinion there on, on the neural factors. Now I know you, you were saying to me you feel that where you're going to add the most is, is getting into potential training methods to overcome these factors, which we'll definitely get to. But just before I get there, sure. with, with these yeah. modifiable determinants, the reason why I want to get your take on this too is, so yeah, if you read literature, it, it basically says that like the early adaptations to get stronger are nearly always neural because there isn't there, there's no evidence of any hypertrophy accruing, you know. And there's some debate about when it actually does happen, but most would say like. You know, it takes about that kind of six to eight week mark for any appreciable hypertrophy uh, seems to appear. So it kind of goes to this neural factors that are what drive the early strength gains and then hypertrophy takes over. But then again, as we were talking about, there's going to be a diminished return, obviously, with how, how far hypertrophy can take it. Obviously, unless you keep moving up weight class year after year after year until you're super heavyweight. But it also need, it also seems to be nearly like a bell curve in that, like, it's neural, then it's hypertrophic adaptations that keep getting stronger. And then after a while, it's kind of like, then we get into this like oh it looks like neural again in terms of more like variation of training we were kind of speaking about this just offline and dynamic systems theory and like yeah. the strength that approach to be able to open up more degrees of freedom and um, so this is where this kind of maybe more variation is become more of the overload rather than just progressive volumes and intensities which obviously you know you can only go so far with volume intensity as your primary means of progressive overload so what maybe would your thoughts be on on that like yeah it seems to make sense to me you know uh, it, it seems that uh, you're going to run into some limiting, uh, some sort of limitation in terms of the amount of hypertrophy uh, that you can get. Mm. Excuse me, I need to cough for a second there. Oh, no problem. Uh, <laughs> no problem. Um, you're going to run into a limitation and uh, just biological limitations with hypertrophy. You know, if you look at, uh, even if you look at like dedicated, uh, for for now, let's say natural bodybuilders, they seem to hit a limit, you know, not not terribly far into their career where they're not adding huge amounts of muscle mass year over year. Yeah, you know. So, I mean, it does kind of beg the question: how much more hypertrophy is possible? You know, like you take somebody like me. I've been powerlifting for twenty some odd years and more or less the the same weight class. Like I started out at uh, 110 kilos. Now I'm 120, 125, you know? Mm. So that's a long time in that range, you know? Uh, so how much more hypertrophy potential does somebody like me have? You know, probably, I mean, probably not a ton. I mean, I, I hate to say that I'm lifting weights for no reason, so hopefully there's some additional potential there, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, in terms of hypertrophy, there's probably uh, getting pretty close to a limit without adding just more body weight. And then what's left, you know, in terms of uh, adding more strength? Well, I, I think you're right. You go back toward the, the neural uh, mechanisms and – you know, you've got to refine those things and get better along those lines, which that, you know, there's a lot of potential there. Mm. Uh, I posted a video, this has been a while ago, of 
of me uh, squatting, doing a squat at something like uh, six years training age and 16 years training age or something like that. And I mean, if you've been training for six years, most people would consider that you're a fairly experienced lifter at that point. Yeah. You're certainly technically proficient. You know, like if, and if I, I know that like looking at the squat that I had done at training age six, you know, it looked proficient. It looked fine. Uh, but then if you compare that to the squat that I did at training age 16, it's not that there's a dramatic, it's not that there's technical things that you look at and go, ah, oh, see, you're, you're, you didn't hold your knee out the way that you should have or, or something like that. It's not quite so clear cut, but there's a certain refinement element. Mm to the lift. Yeah. There's a, yeah, I I don't think I could know a better word other than just a, a refinement to it. Uh, it looks more polished. It, it looks more, uh, perfected, I guess, you know, even though I don't think you ever reach that ideal, you know, anyway, my, my point is that even in that scenario, there's still, uh, visible technical proficiency that's changing. So why couldn't there also be, um, other neural factors that are kind of below your normal perception, uh, that are changing as well? Yeah, that's great stuff. And so yeah, that's kind of covering the, the intramuscular and intramuscular coordination. Um, I suppose the other one then is neural inhibition, which is, you know, so for, for people who are not aware of what, what neural inhibition is, it, it's essentially the central nervous system's way of providing a protective mechanism so that we don't injure the organism. So uh, so basically you have what are called your Golgi tendon organs, which are situated in your tendons, and they sense how much tension is going through the tissues. Then you have your muscle spindles, which essentially are in the muscle belly, and they sense the, the rate of, of the of the stretch of a tissue, so how fast your tissues are, are being stretched or how fast they're being lengthened. And essentially, these two uh, these two uh, um, proprioceptors they refer information back to the central nervous system through afferent pathways um, about uh, how much force again from the gliotinal organs and, and how fast the tissue is being stretched from the muscle spindles. They refer this information back to the brain, and then the brain makes a decision to to dampen down the neural drive to that particular area of the body because it thinks it could be a threat and that the organism could essentially injure itself. So, again, a definition of neural inhibition is it's essential nervous system's um, protective mechanism of of uh, of, uh, of uh, shutting down any potential harm to the organism. And I, as I always say, like what we're always trying to do through the training process is to diminish this neural inhibition and, and diminish this, this uh, inhibition that the central nervous system has on our true force output capability. So... Obviously, over the course of, of a lifter's career, that, that's definitely one neural adaptation that we're probably initially we get a huge uh, change in from beginner to you know to probably even that intermediate stage. But then it obviously there's a diminishing return. Then probably something similar to as you said, maybe that six year six year old to sixteen year old uh, Mike Tashir lifting. There, there probably definitely has been some decrease in that inhibition, allowing you to be able to lift more weight and lift it more smoothly as well. Yeah. Yeah, I would expect so. I, I know Fred Hatfield was was really big on on this component itself. Um, you know, reducing neural inhibition, reducing the sensitivity of the Golgi tendon organ. Um, you know, he advocated a lot of uh, you know eccentric training and heavy walkouts and things like that. Uh, he felt like 
stuff like that would have an effect. Uh, and, and yeah, just reduce the inhibition, uh, reduce that neural inhibition quality. And if you do that, then you should be able to, to lift heavier weight. Um, it's also a safety mechanism, which, Mm. uh, makes me kind of reluctant to mess with it too much, I guess, you know, it, it makes sense that, you know, the setting is probably on the conservative side and then through training, it it gets, uh, dialed into a place where it's probably, uh, serving you better. Um, it's apparently though, it's almost impossible though to, 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 to like to recruit so much force that you would actually damage your, your, your system. Um, now, okay. I, so, so some people, that's good to know. <laughs> like, like, so, so some people can come back and say, well, what about the bodybuilders who like tear their pec or tear their knee? And a lot of people sure. come back and say, well, that, that you'd have to factor in like the drug elements of that because obviously drugs screw up your tendon strength, you know, and they just, yeah. rip, they just rip off. But, uh, like, so, and this is the only new, there actually is a difference between absolute strength and maximum strength. They're not the same thing. So absolute sure. is like the absolute you could, you absolute force you could uh, express, whereas maximum is the maximum that you actually can express. And then yeah. it's, uh, what is the, the bracket or the deficit between those two is essentially, is essentially where that, that, that sort of buffer of this neural inhibition comes in. Um, and what we're trying to do is get our maximum strength as close to our absolute strength capabilities as possible over the right. course of, of, our, of our lifting career. So yeah. um, I, I find neural inhibition really fascinating. I've always found it fascinating, to be honest. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as I said, we're, what we're trying to do is diminish the central nervous system's inhibition on our true force output capabilities. So uh, yeah, I, I, found yeah. it, I find it a, a fascinating area of research. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, so uh, another one, um, before we, uh, we will move on now to the, the methods and means, and that's where you can definitely take over. Um, <laughs> another one uh, interested here is, so I've seen this in a few textbooks and literature in terms of this being a, a, um, a determinant. Um, so the stress shortening cycle is a determinant, but if we're talking about a powerlifter, it's probably not going to be something we can factor in too much because obviously there's a pause at the bottom of the squat and a pause at the bottom of the bench, and then obviously deadlift is just straight off the floor, so it's purely concentric. But some people would argue that you could get better at still utilizing some sort of elastic energy, even if there is a one to two second pause at the bottom. And um, like, it's definitely without question, concentric force is always greater when it's preceded by an eccentric contraction. But if there's, a, if there's an isometric pause in between it, well then how much would benefit are you getting? So do you think there still is any benefit to a stress shortening cycle or trying to enhance it? Now, obviously I know that you mm-hmm. like to, you like to do the old touch and go bench press and, and, uh, yeah, as as an overload uh, mechanism, let's just uh, handle a few more weight and all that. But do you think that there is any merit to trying to enhance stretch work so you have for actual competition movement now? You know, I I suppose I don't know. Yeah, um, and, and I, I'm afraid I might be saying that a lot here. <laughs> no, no, listen, but, it's all it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. And, and the reason I ask you is that in, in the West, in the book of methods, Louis quotes a guy called Wilson, and Wilson said mm-hmm. that that. But he he's observed now. It's only in the book, and I actually messaged Tom Barry to ask Louis where where like this Wilson reference come from. But like in the book, it says that like uh, lifters can hold some elastic energy for two seconds, two to four seconds of an isometric. Sure. Four, four seconds was more observed than more elite lifters. So as in they went down, paused, and they still got a benefit from the eccentric even after four seconds and more than elite lifter. Yeah, that's that's the thing that you know I've definitely read in, in Louis articles and whatnot before. Um, 
I don't know really how seriously to to take it. I suppose from from where I sit, probably the best example that that I include in the training that that I write uh, that could be that could fall under this umbrella is like you said the touch and go bench. Um, I do like to have people train the touch and go bench. Um, the reason why is because I see it as being a benefit to, to their competition bench. Now, as far as why that's beneficial to their competition bench, is it because it enhances the stress shortening cycle, uh, or is it because it helps them handle, you know, you know, five kilos more weight, uh, and that has a strength benefit. Um, it's hard to say Mm -hmm. now I I will say this though theoretically you should be able to handle more weight on a touch and go bench than you can on a pause bench should be it's not at all uncommon uh, for me to find lifters myself included who can handle more weight on a on a say a competition pause than they can with a touch and go now whether that's a why, why might that be? One, I guess, potential explanation is, uh, you know, something to do with the stress shortening cycle. Another potential explanation is something to do with the coordination of, with a touch and go bench, you're bringing the bar down. Uh, you're going to touch a bit faster, uh, than you would. Otherwise, um, you're not preparing yourself for that pause. Uh, so I, I think that there could potentially be some coordination factors in there, mm. but that's definitely an, an interesting thing that, you know, if, if you look at it on its face, you know, a pause should mean that you're handling less weight, but I don't find that to always be the case. Yeah. Uh, I'm hesitant to say it's like that, you know, with any certain percentage, but uh, like I said, it's not at all uncommon. Uh, for us to find someone who has that type of distribution. <clears throat> I, I, I'd say too, like, I know from the sprinting world, they kind of talk about you're more neuromuscular type sprinter versus more your elastic reactive type sprinter. So like the, the more neuromuscular guy is generally like, you know, the, the sprinter who's uh, really good starting, um, accelerating explosive strength. Um, but they're not quite as good when they get to upright running mechanics and they have to utilize more elastic reactive capabilities and they don't endure as well. Whereas your more elastic reactive guys, they're not quite as strong from an absolute strength standpoint. So their starting and accelerating strength isn't great. But once they get upright running and it's that sort of absolute speed phase of a 100 meter sprint and they get to utilize more of elastic reactive strength, like they, that's when they really start to show prominence in the 100 meter race. And I wonder if it's the case maybe with someone in parallel and be a squat or a bench that one is just more better at utilizing maybe some elastic, stored elastic energy, whereas another person is a little more neuromuscular where they like to be able to pause and then just like, it's more of a muscular effort rather than say someone who, who can utilize a little more elasticity and, and get some more of that free kinetic energy back in the bar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes sense to me, but then that kind of goes back to the, the question of trainability. Uh, yeah. Now, like, you know, well, is, what, 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 I'm kind of, what I'm kind of saying too is that say for stress shortening cycle, I mean, train, train, even like say with your touch and go bench, like even mm-hmm. just even just training touch and go as a way of, of upping your your just your competition bench, like even if it, like you know just even to like it, it like cause with, with touch and go you are 
you are going to be using more elasticity in it than you would with, with a pause. Even if you're better at the pause or whatnot, it's, I suppose I'm getting more at like tra just training the stretch shortening cycle, see if it has a carryover, rather than kind of saying that, you know, we're training the stretch shortening cycle because we think that you should be using this as you execute your competition bench, if that makes sense. I'm already saying that we're using it in training to be able just to lift more weight on the platform in general. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose it depends on. It, I'm sure this goes beyond where you would no, prefer go to go with your go. with your paper, but go ahead. you know, you're gonna. It's gonna depend a bit on on the judging as well. You know, if you get mm. into one of these situations where yeah, you have some some favorable judges, the pauses aren't so long, and then you know, it, it makes sense to me that the uh, benefits of a stretch shortening cycle are going to be time-based. So the shorter the time, the more likely you would be to get something out of it, yeah. uh, even if it's not a whole lot. You know, So if you have uh, a quick press command versus a, a really long press command, then you know, everyone knows that that, that matters. You, know, you, can do, you can probably lift more weight with a competition pause than you can with a two-second pause versus a three-second pause and so on. <clears throat> At some point, that's less about the elastic energy and more about just the the energy expended to isometrically hold that weight at the bottom. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, that, and that's kind of where, again, I would like where Louis come up because when he's like, you know, it's two to four seconds cuts. If, if someone could theoretically hold for four seconds, well, then there might be better. Again, it's context. Depending on the lifter, as you said, you've seen some lifters don't get any benefit from Pushing go versus like so you're saying yourself that you you're really better with an actual pause so again it's going to be context to the lifter but let's say if there was someone who who does benefit from a bit of elastic energy and theoretically let's just say that they could hold four seconds well then maybe there might be there might be a a, a benefit to it so again it's like it's like everything might yeah. it always comes down to well it depends <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah. but uh so the the next determinant factor against hypertrophy and i mean uh, in any literature you read, they always say that hypertrophy is, is basically the most modifiable factor we have against stronger. But again, as we alluded to earlier on, that will have a diminishing return. And you brought up actually a great point in, in that, uh, like you, yeah, you look at bodybuilders, like top level bodybuilders. I mean, and these guys are like eating the best of the best, training the best of the best, and then obviously probably have yeah. the best drugs going. And they're and they're still like struggling to continue to put on any appreciable mass. So there is a diminishing return. But obviously, like, hypertrophy from anyone who's beginner to intermediate, I mean, it's obvious why this would lead to more force. And again, well, i got to preface this too, because it's very, very important we say this. A bigger muscle has more potential to uh, create more force because it has to get innervated by the nervous system. So just because you have a bigger muscle doesn't necessarily automatically mean you will be stronger. So yeah. that Because that, I always hear that people go, no, bigger muscle doesn't mean that you're stronger. It, it just means you have more potential to be stronger. So that's the key word is potential. <laughs> um, and the reason why, obviously, just more more, uh, more protein coupling between the actinomycin. And, um, mm -hmm. and I suppose then there has been, needs to be a conversation then around, uh, you know, myofibular versus sacroplasm. And obviously, you know, myofibular is the kind of more approach we want to go for because that will actually add more contractile proteins to the to the myofibrillar. And rather psychopaths which just fluid and stuff like that. So I mean, I mean again, that kind of stuff is basic stuff you get out of the text and the literature. The the one sort of area that they keep debating on, and it's not it's, it's not that it really even matters, but they keep asking, they keep talking about is there such a thing as hyperplasia? So that's actual adding of fibers 
So they've shot, they've seen it in some animal models, but uh, in, yeah. human, in human models it, it's, it hasn't really been shown. There is one paper showing that bodybuilders had more fibers than uh, than non-bodybuilders, basically. But uh, people were just saying that was just a genetic thing. They had more fibers to begin with anyway. It's not that they got that through training. And then finally as well, they say that if hyperplasia does actually happen, it's going to account for such a small overall total of hypertrophy that it's not even really worth just having a, a debate or a conversation about. But definitely hypertrophy is is the most modifiable factor up to a certain point. Sure. Uh, then you, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, uh, as far as hyperplasia goes, uh, I mean, uh, again, it, I would think that somebody like uh, – like Greg would be a good person to have uh, a conversation like this with uh, yeah. as far as like the, these specific uh, issues, because uh, like I'm familiar with, uh, with like the myonuclear domain domain theory mm. um, in terms of like satellite cells uh, donating nuclei uh, to yeah. a muscle fiber. So the fiber can, can grow bigger. I don't know if that hits any sort of operational limits where you would need hyperplasia. Um, that, that, that that's actually a, 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 a hypothesized mechanism mechanism too. So just for the listeners who, who aren't familiar with that, because it's only something I've really got to know lately. So basically, in skeletal muscle fibers, you have multiple nucleuses, which is quite different to the other cells. But there's multiple nuclei or nucleus in a muscle fiber cell, and this helps the cell then. Um, helps the cell in regards to hypertrophy because you've got multiple nuclei that can help support more um, gen- genesis of more fibrils. But there seems to be a ceiling to that. So there's only so much uh, myofibril content that these myonuclei can support. And then after a while, you're going to need help from what are called satellite cells, which are basically like stem stem cells that are like in what's called the basal lamina, which is underneath the cell membrane. And they donate themselves then to turn into more nuclei that can help and support a higher volume of myofibrils and then therefore hypertrophy. But then, as Mike has alluded to there, there seems to be a limit to that then in terms of the satellite cells. And then there might be a, a case where that the fibers now actually split. So that's just to fill the listeners in. Yeah, well, I think you explained that better than I could have. So. And, the, and the only reason I know it was because uh, I'm, I'm in the depths of it now, Mike, that's all. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Listen, let, let's let's get your expertise in this now. So I'll, fin- I'll finish up with these determinants and then we'll get into the program and then yeah, sure. you take it away. So other factors to talk about is fiber type transition. And it's actually funny. The most common fiber type transition is actually your 2X or what else called 2B fibers to 2A. So strength training actually, quote, unquote, makes you slower. <laughs> Chronic yeah. <laughs> so, but but it, it's compensated by a few things. One, you're going to get bigger uh, type two fibers. You're going to get more total type two fibers, and you're also going to get larger neural recruitment to these type of fibers. So, from a force aspect, your strength will go up. But that that is why after a certain period of time, if you have someone who's already very very strong, let's just talk about an athlete where rate of force development is a large uh, determining factor in their success. So, like an American football player or a sport of that nature. That's why after a while, continually trying to get them strong when their limited factor might be rate of force development is a fruitless endeavor. So you want to spend more time just maintaining strength and then focus more on their rate of force development because that's, yeah. that, that's one thing. So you will get strong. Even though there's a shift to 2A, your, your strength will still go up because of those compensatory mechanisms of big, bigger types of fibers overall, more types of fibers overall, and extra neural drive to it. Um, fiber arrangements another one so this penation angle so incre- increase mm-hmm. penation angle means increased force but it actually increased penation angle actually decreases velocity so there needs to be a balance there and again it's context right. of who the athlete is 
nutrition then is is a huge factor so like obviously you're not going to be the strongest if you're coming off like a 24-hour fast or something like that <laughs> you know uh, and just there's a there's other factors there so acutely nutrition definitely is a, a huge factor and um, equipment belt wraps raw versus non-raw pharmacology drugs and everything and then finally this this is where your expertise is going to come in is the program design and organization of the training so um so now we're going to talk about how can we how can we potentially overcome some of these limiting factors and actually mike i am really talking about more elite level athletes here so you know you you do work with elite powerlifters, so it's kind of perfect for you so it's, it's really trying to get who are already the great to even greater so i mean you, yeah. you can just for the rest of the podcast now and then I'll, I'll, <laughs> if, I any, if i have any questions i'll jump in so basically just so, some ideas i had here were uh so uh, i have programming training methods to overcome these different factors some ideas that i wrote out here were uh, obviously the management of volume and intensity planned overreaching specificity versus variation which is that kind of thing we were talking about with the nervous system you know mm-hmm. and then obviously you know you've looked so much into specificity variation bonder truck and that so you can you can sure get on that if you want things then like isometrics i think can be mm-hmm. kind of you know they, they might be on new super super max efforts like partial range of motions so an eccentric so maybe something like board presses or and then eccentric sure. methods uh and then i wrote down here anything that threatens the brain so again so brain threat response protocols basically manipulation of sensory systems so again it kind of goes back to this neural inhibition thing but i've looked into a lot of work of db hammer and i spoke with a guy called dan victor and chris corpus and these guys who would have been influenced by db and so yeah. db used to do these things called amt jumps where like you do a depth jump but you'd be pulled down by these bands so you went even faster and apparently like there's like there's like you know he was saying that we don't train we don't train the visual system or the vestibular system in terms of trying to get more output and more biological output capabilities in the system like we're not training enough for the sensory systems and um, so kind of like things like that and again going back just neural inhibition like that's what strength training is so strength training is a threat to the system and what we're trying to do is dampen down that threat response to the brain so that over time that neural inhibition will become more dampened and more diminished so that we can uh, express our true force output capabilities or or close that gap between our maximum and absolute strength capabilities then uh, yeah. e- equipment raw versus gear and then drugs or the other things in there as well but uh sure. you fire ahead there then in terms of like you know your your current i suppose really it's a question like your current thought process of getting people who are already fucking genetic freaks to be even more genetic freaks so basically like it's basically like i'm blaine summer how are you going to get me better it's like oh jeez <laughs> it's like oh jeez i don't know <laughs> well Honest to God, that is my thought process most of the time when I start working with someone like that. Um, <laughs> like, uh, I had talked to Dennis Cornelius for a number of years before, like, we actually decided to pull the trigger and, and I would take over his training for a little while. And I remember when he, when he first said that, that, yeah, hey, let's do it. I felt a little bit like the dog who'd, who'd caught the car. It's like you've got this guy who already wins world championships by like 100 pounds uh, and nobody's even close to him in the IPF. And, uh, you know, what do you do with somebody like that? Like there's a million ways to screw it up, you know, but how do you how do you take that and and win? And um, so far, my answer to that has been something along the lines of, First, don't screw it up right off the bat. <laughs> so uh, let's start out with something that's very similar to, to what they used to get to this point. What, what, what were they already doing? So pulling that training history has been uh, really important. 
you know, and you start there. Um, and you may make one or two small tweaks to it to so, like in, in Dennis's case, we made a, like a couple very small modifications to it just so that it fit in the overall um, language of RTS better. Um, and then that was it. And we just ran that the first block and it worked great, which made me look like a genius. Although it had nothing to do with, with expert programming or anything like that. It just, in that case was lucky, you know, um, but where to go from there is you make incremental changes and, and measure the results and, and start to form a picture of what this person responds best to. Um, it's kind of like you, you were alluding to uh, the Bonnerchuk methodology, and, and that is probably the best. Um, that's probably the best method that I've come across for figuring out uh, the individualization process. You know, because a, a lot of coaches talk about, at least, and, and I'm speaking more about, you know, powerlifting coaches and the people that I interact with on the, on the daily. Um, and this is definitely not everybody, but lots of people talk about individualizing training and, you know, figuring out what works best for the lifter. But after that, it's met with a lot of hand waving and like, well, you just kind of figure it out. You know, it, it's, it's up to the pattern recognition skills of the coach to, to solve this problem. When that, I don't really think that's a, that great of an answer, you know? And, and, and honestly, it was, uh, you did a podcast with Derek Evely, uh, and that was when I had I personally had a light bulb moment um, because I, I've been looking for a number of years on how would I write a training in a bottom up style. Uh, what would bottom up training a bottom up training approach look like? You know, like all the periodization stuff that we talk about, different periodization models. Those are all top down approaches, so those are met with some significant limitations what would the opposite approach to that look like? And I mean, it's kind of hard to just, you know, think your way into a paradigm shift. Um, but I was listening to, to your podcast with Derek and that's when it kind of clicked. And I was like, Oh, that's what a bottom up approach would look like. Now at that point, you just have to translate it from being about hammer throw and shot put into being about powerlifting. And you know, that's kind of how these ideas got started uh, with me, how I started implementing a lot of these ideas. Um, but yeah, as, as far as a process goes for how to figure out what is this athlete responding best to, you know, that's, that's it, you know, and, and another thing that, that you mentioned, and this has kind of been a, a topic I'm running all over the place. So feel free to stop me. Oh, no, no, it's perfect. You go ahead. But, but another topic that's been coming up with me uh, more recently has been this idea of specificity versus transference. Um, yeah, there's an idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it, it's really, I, I got that from Derek uh, in one of his presentations. He said that. I know that was a little bit of a light bulb for me. I was like, ah, specificity versus transfer because there is a difference. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, we've, it, again, speaking of the powerlifting community, we've kind of fallen in love with the idea of specificity. And I think we hit kind of a, a limit to that uh, a couple years ago. And it seems to me that as a whole, we've just kind of 
seen the natural conclusion of like, well, what happens if I only do squat, bench, and deadlift and nothing else? Oh, well, that doesn't work for very long. So what now? And that's kind of where I see the powerlifting community sitting right now is where, like, well, what next? You know, uh, the answer to that question to me is that it's, it's not about specificity. The thing that you're interested in is not specificity. The thing that you're interested in is transfer. You know, you want the training that you do to transfer, by which I mean make you better at your competitive event. Now, high specificity movement gets you closer to that most of the time. You know, if you're you're a power lifter, so you want to get better at squat, bench, and deadlift, and you're training lunges and, and tricep extensions, and then suddenly you move to uh, squats, benches, and deadlifts training the competition exercise. That's a big change in specificity, and that will likely have a better transfer. But when you're down to splitting hairs over specificity, it doesn't work out so nicely all the time. Uh, just by way of example, um, let's take the two-count pause bench and the chest-level pin press. So both are obviously bench exercises. Uh, the two-count pause bench is probably slightly more specific to the competition bench than the chest-level pin press. They're very similar, but pause benches are probably more specific, right? Just slightly. But I know that if I look at my training blocks, training blocks that include the pin press have a better result than training blocks that include the pause bench. So the pause bench is more specific, but it gets me less result on my competition lift. So why would I go down that road? Well, I, I wouldn't. And here's another wrench to throw into the works. That's not true all the time. Uh, so like, that's how it is for me, for me personally, but pause bench is better than, uh, or pin press is better than pause bench. But you take an, another lifter, uh, like Kelly Branton, who is a world record holder in the bench, uh, for him, pause bench and spoto press, things like that are, are better than, uh, pin pressing, you know, to some extent <clears throat> it has to do with, uh, in, in his particular case, pin pressing kind of leaves him beat up. Uh, he gets more joint aches and pains and stuff like that. So maybe that's part of it, but it's not, it's not completely obvious that that's the only reason, you know, it's, it certainly seems to me that, uh, there's more to it than just that, that there's a, a tendency to, um, just respond better to certain lifts versus other lifts. Even if you have cycles that are, um, you know, equal in terms of uh, wear and tear on the body, let's say. So all that to say, <clears throat> different people respond to the same exercise in different ways. Some One person's going to get more out of, uh, you know, a low incline press or another person's going to get more out of, uh, you know, something else. So it's kind of, <clears throat> you've got to figure out this, this puzzle, you know, what does this individual lifter respond best to? And that's kind of, that kind of radical individualization is, is where I see my own coaching practice going. 
how, how it's, it's actually something I, I wanted to get you on the podcast to talk about separately, but we might as well get into it here. Is, so you, you've kind of applied the spawner truck model now for over the last, maybe what, two years would it be now, Mike? A bit longer? You run that? Uh, a, bit, a bit longer, but yeah, let's say, let's say three. Uh, and uh, so how, 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 like, I suppose the question I, I want to ask is like, um, how did how did you initially go about formulating that model in your mind and maybe just discuss how the last three years of this model have gone? Maybe just give the listeners a little bit of background into it again. I know Derek's on the podcast, but basically, yeah. like, uh, you know, there's the sort of the basic the three models where it's just an A, it's just an A program, it's just drip drip drip, and then there's an A B where yeah. it's drip drop, and then it's the A B C model where it's drip drop drip and uh, I know, yeah, I know, so, I know. Yeah. Uh, I know. He speaks about that. We spoke about that when you were in Ireland as well last year. So yeah, maybe just get yeah. into like uh, how the initial stages of uh, using the bonnet truck system with powerlifters sort of looked in your mind, and you know, sure. I, 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 I could just like kind of see you sitting down with a piece of paper or a whiteboard, <laughs> and I, I kind of like going pros and cons, and well, how do I exactly fit this <laughs> into powerlifting? Because there's a lot, yeah. of pe- there's a lot of people trying to fit that bonnet truck model into like sprinting and they're saying can you do it sprinting because of the outputs and then and then like you know you see someone like you who's like doing it with powerless and and like you know in terms of like the actual uh physiological physical load uh, that's on on the system it's much harder than will be for hammer throw which is what bonnet truck originally applied his model towards was hammer throw and and the field event so it is very interesting to see that model taken towards something like powerless because a lot of people say i can't really do for sprinting and it's like well someone can do a powerless and Maybe there is a way of manipulating it for sprinting. I don't know. So it's just uh, very interesting to hear. Uh, yeah, hear your sort of whole background story. In it. Yeah, yeah. The so the the beginning of this story starts much earlier for me. Um, are you familiar with a book called Squat Every Day by Matt Perryman? Matt Perryman, yeah, I have it here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's an excellent book. Um, I read an early draft of that when it first came out. Um, so this would have been 2010, 11 time frame, somewhere mm-hmm. in there. Um, I read that book, and I mean, there's there's definitely a, a training approach and and a, a certain advocacy in that book. Um, but what I thought was really interesting uh, was more of the thought process that went into it, and I think that book is excellent for thought process alone. Um, but one of the things that comes up in that book is, the, you know, the difference between a, a top-down and bottom-up approach in planning training, and that all the periodization models that always get talked about, we talk about Isherin and block periodization and all these different things, uh, they're all top-down models, and that any top-down model is going to come with it certain assumptions, and those assumptions are going to lead you to certain limitations. And so I thought, well, that's really neat. What would a bottom-up approach to training look like? You know, like, how would you, that's a hard question to answer in that context because it's like, how do you unlearn everything that you've learned already? You know, well, uh, I don't know. (laughs) And so that's kind of where it sat for a number of years. You know, just kind of thinking about mulling over bottom-up approach. And the best that I could come up with, and, and it's, basically what everyone else has come up with as far as I can tell it's a top-down approach but you include these little feedback loops you know so yeah you, you've got your top-down approach you know that you're going to use block periodization and that your big meat for the 
for the year is going to be in nine months and you're going to subdivide it into this this many categories and so on uh, but we're only going to plan in detail for four weeks at a time you know so there's your feedback loop you know and that gets you kind of around some of those uh, psychological problems with uh, over adherence to a plan and things like that right we'll only plan for four weeks at a time and that that will prompt us to adjust the plan you, you still have a top-down approach uh, you've just included these little feedback loops. What would it look like if you had a bottom-up approach? Uh, and you would still need these, I guess in that case, they would be like feed-forward loops. Uh, but you would still need these little loops in there to, to make sure that you're keeping the long-term picture in intact. In, in but the training is fundamentally different. The long-term emerges from the short-term at that point. There is no long-term plan, at least in the beginning you have to solve the short-term problem before you start to solve the long-term problem. Okay, that's great, but how the heck do you do that? And I had no answer um, until, like I said, I, I listened to that podcast with Derek. And I'll tell you that I was actually driving to the airport uh, to pick up my brother uh, while I was listening to that podcast. And, I mean, I'm telling you, it was, it was one of the coolest uh, training moments um, probably of my life because here I have this problem that I've been chewing on for a number of years, you know, and all of a sudden there's a potential answer. And I got so excited about this. You know, I, I, I like I said, I'm driving to the airport, which it's about an hour and a half from my house. Uh, so I turned on the, the little voice note recorder on my phone and I just started talking the, the whole way up there. So it wasn't quite the whiteboard and pros and cons, but it was close. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that's kind of how I formed the, the initial picture. Um, so to maybe add a, a bit more detail about what it's turned into, uh, here in the beginning, it's this idea that the human body is a complex system. You get nonlinear outputs for the same input. You can do the same training program twice and get different responses, sometimes totally different responses. Uh, and that it's not, it, it is inherently unpredictable uh, with any real degree of certainty. So <clears throat> if, you, if you're dealing with this complex system, what we've always done in the past is to meet that complex system with more complexity. That's where we get these complicated periodization schemes and these interlocking cycles within cycles and, and all these different things. It's, it's meeting complexity with more complexity. No two workouts are ever the same. And, and well, that's fine, but how do you ever gauge what the response is? You know, um, it's, it's adding more and more and more noise and it disguises what the signal is. So the Bondarchuk approach has been to go completely the other direction. You know, and it, it what it reminds me of is, is what would you do about training if you didn't know anything about training? You know, how would you set up, how would you figure out your, your training program if you didn't know anything about training? And if I go back, uh, so I'm a bit of an odd, odd lifter that I've never really in my life had a coach. Um, it's like my second day in the gym and I was like, Hey, I wrote this program. And thankfully, uh, I had some coaches and instructors who, 
uh, were willing to not squash my enthusiasm and just kind of let me go with it. Uh, but now I can look back on that and see this is what you would do if you were a total beginner and you didn't know anything about anything and you just tried to write your own program. This is what you would come up with, you know, and it's not it wasn't good by any stretch, but in principle, it was similar in that you don't have these interlocking cycles within cycles because in my world at the time, I hadn't come up with that idea yet. You know, so it's much simpler in construction. So it's it's kind of like that. It's like, what would you do if you didn't if you didn't take a lot of these ideas for granted? You know, if you didn't just assume that, well, block periodization is the best. So that's what I'll do. Don't make that assumption. So so now what? You know, well, let's build a training microcycle and just do that and see what the response is. So that's kind of one point of departure uh, that I've got with uh, with Derek and, and I guess some more of the traditional uh, Bondarchuk applications. Since powerlifting is a three-event sport, we have more skills. We have three times the number of skills that we're trying to develop. You know, so whereas if you're a, a hammer thrower, you can have one program that includes all four uh, movement classifications, uh, referring to the Bonnerchuk uh, movement classifications, you can have all four movements in a single workout and just repeat that workout every day. Well, if you tried to do that with the power lifts, then you'd have 12 exercises in a workout and that's just not practical, you know? So really what you're doing is you're creating a microcycle and you're trying to repeat that microcycle. Uh, now in common periodization parlance, microcycles always been synonymous with a training week. You know, it's just that, uh, when Bondarchuk or whoever has somebody do one program and repeat it every day, it's one, it's one microcycle condensed down to one training session. And you're just repeating that training session over and over. What I did in, in the initial stages was I said, well, let's leave it as a training week. So for most of my athletes, that's going to be four sessions, you know, but each training week is going to be the same. And that turned out, you know, probably lucky guess. And that turned out to work well for the sport that I'm in. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, to, to use, uh, uh, Derek's Chinese water torture, uh, analogy, it would be ABCD, 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 you know, and so on. And what you're doing is you're trying to measure that and see, um, how's the athlete responding to this, you know, um, and he talks about, you know, a number of responses, which I've seen reflected in powerlifting as well. Uh, you've got your, your type one response, which is the athlete just gets better. You know, uh, you know, week one, their estimated one RM is a hundred week two is one Oh two week three is one Oh five and so on and so on. Uh, that's nice. Um, you get other athletes who there's first a performance dip, and then a consistent improvement. And then the third type would be, uh, it looks like things are stagnant. You know, uh, the performance is kind of at a flat line until the very end. And you may get a small dip and then a peak, or it may just kind of be a flat line and then sudden jump up in performance. Um, so that's kind of the, I've seen those responses as well. Um, I haven't seen it like down to the athlete 
like this athlete is a type one responder, this athlete's type two. To me, it seems to be, it varies a bit depending on the training cycle. You know, this athlete with this training cycle is going to give me a type one response. This athlete with that training cycle is going to give me a type two and, and like that. Um, yeah, you have to rein me in if I'm getting too far into the weeds. No, on no, this is great. <laughs> uh, one, one thing on that. So with, um, with, uh, with, with beginner versus – would you start a beginner off with a spawner truck type model or would you still go more with your own traditional – you know, maybe your old sort of, not your old, but like kind of more your standard reactive training yeah. system uh, programs um, and kind of just getting them up to speed on that and RPEs. And then would you progress along? Maybe it's just more bond truck model or how, how do you see, like, how do you see that progression going? You know, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, it would be interesting to see how this, how this plays out a bit more. I've thought up to this point that there would be some distinct advantages to using this method uh, with a beginner because, you know, take a, a standard beginner approach and say you're going to have them do sets of five. Um, well, they if they're doing sets of five every week, uh, then they know how much weight they should be using and they can, you know, try to beat last week's mark by a small margin. It removes the amount of guesswork. It gives them a chance to uh, figure out the whole RPE system if they haven't done so already. Uh, they get used to the stimulus, and then you, as a coach, get a better idea of, you know, these are the types of things that they respond to. Um, it's not exactly the same thing, uh, but I think you knew uh, I've been uh, dealing with a bit of a long-term injury for the last several years, so. One thing that I did, I found that I can do front squats as heavy as I want, uh, and that doesn't give me any problems whatsoever. So for all intents and purposes, I switched my competition lift to the front squat about a year ago. Uh, so I've used this approach for basically my whole training career as a front squatter. Um, so it's not exactly the same as being a beginner and then progressing, uh, but it's kind of in the neighborhood. I was a beginner at that movement, um, and I feel like it's given me uh, a good opportunity to uh, learn about what I respond best to as, as a front squatter. Now, it's not the same level of resolution because it all changes so much faster uh, with a new lifter versus you know a veteran lifter. You know, a veteran lifter may not add that much to their total in a given year, uh, whereas your new lifter is going to be dramatically stronger from one year to the next. So how applicable is it going to be, you know, if you've added, you know, 100 pounds to your squat in the last year? You know, well, I, I don't know, maybe not that applicable, but I think it's better than not knowing anything, you know, which as far as I can tell is where you would be otherwise. <clears throat> and then, uh, Mike, so in, in terms of this, this Bonner Chalk system, um, so I'm with the ABCD. So you're, we're squatting, bench, and deadlifting every day. What sort of – how are you manipulating the volumes and intensities among the three movements across those four days? So we won't necessarily do all three lifts every day. Oh, sorry. So, That's how you were doing yeah, it. No, no. It's, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because it's, it, it is a, a key difference between the, the two approaches. Um, I think I was just going off your project momentum. I think were you doing all the lists on all those days? 
We did we did all the lifts uh, every day in one of the projects. Uh, we wanted to kind of test out what some extremely high frequencies would be. Um, that was definitely interesting, but I would say that, that that's before I was as heavily into, into this. I would say the ideas were still... Uh, Formulated. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, you don't know how any of this stuff is going to go. So, like, after I had, you know, I kind of put together a mock-up and said, well, this is what I would do uh, if I was going to try this approach, uh, this bottom-up approach. Um, so now what? Well, we can try it and see if it's, you know, if it's a complete disaster or not, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, actually... Uh, the first two people I tried it on, I, I was in the middle of a comp prep myself at the time, so I didn't want to bail on that. Um, I actually tried it on uh, Liz Craven and her training partner, uh, Megan Hinchley, who are both very high-level uh, lifters in Australia. Uh, Liz, is, <clears throat> excuse me, Liz has been a, an IPF medalist for the last several years. Um, and... Another thing about this bottom-up approach is that it seems like, well, it's the strategic use of variation, right? So instead of including variation in your training all the time, every week is different, every workout is different, it's only changing things when they need to be changed. So instead of a, a shotgun for variation, it's a, it's a rifle for variation. You're only going to use it at strategic times. Uh, in terms of how I thought that would affect um, the training outcome, I thought this is going to get us slightly worse results in each training block, but you'll increase your number of successful training blocks in a year, and therefore your, your net result would be better in a given year. Um, so that's kind of where I thought this would end up. It's not where it actually ended up at all. So like I said, I, I first tried this on, on Liz and Megan and, you know, they, they said they bought into it. They said, yeah, sure. Whatever you think, uh, works for us. So, um, they tried it and it, it had a fantastic result from the first training block that we tried it. Uh, the first training block was more successful than anything we had done in probably two years prior to that. And that really surprised me. Like I know in Liz's case, she was handling world record weights in training. And it, it actually made me nervous. I called Derek and was like, hey, man, um, should I pull the plug on this early? You know, and he was kind of like, well, maybe let it ride a little bit more because you you don't want to get an athlete hurt, obviously. Mm -hmm. But this is also rare and valuable training time. Like how often do you get to train in that real peak condition, that real, when you're in such good shape that you're able to have these performances that are, that are really fantastic, you know, those, those don't come along all the time. So you can't flinch too early, you know? So we ended up letting it ride and, and it was, it was fine. You know, eventually there was this performance downturn that, uh, signaled the end of that training block. And so we ended that training block and, and, uh, moved into Derek calls them washout cycles. I've been calling them pivot blocks. Um, whatever, whatever you call them, that's what we ended up doing next and, and kind of kept things rolling from there. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, it, it was a, a fantastic result in that first block. And we found that to be more the rule than the exception, which I, I still can't quite adequately explain. Uh, how um, many how many sessions did she get before she, she hit her? Because I know just for the listeners, Bonnetrook basically like tries to see a trend of how many sessions. Because I know like with Sophie Hitchkin, Sophie Hitchkin with uh, when Derek trained her, she was a thrower. Like it was like he was like thirty three sessions. It was like her. It was like yeah. thirty three three every time. Same boom. Um. So like, did you start to notice how many sessions it was for Liz? Yeah, yeah. So it, it it's interesting, right? Because it's. It seem, it does seem to be a different magnitude with powerlifters. Oh, obviously, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So for for her, for Liz, it's five exposures. So five. Now, if you're doing one microcycle per week, or I, I've got that wrong. It was ten exposures because she's doing two microcycles per week. So think of that throws a lot of people off. What that what that means? You can think of her training as being like two workouts. There's an A workout and a B workout. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you do you make that rotation twice in a week. So if you're training four times a week, it's A B A B. A B. So she got yeah. five five weeks basically off that, wasn't it? Five weeks. Yeah, and and so it's uh, about ten exposures. You know, which is honestly a bit on the long side. Um, I would say between five and six exposures has been more the norm for us. Now it, it's not exactly mathematical, right? And, and those, these guys will tell you the same thing. It's not, so if, if you take Liz and we said it's 10 exposures on this ABAB program. Now, if you were to give her an ABCD program, you know, by the math, it should then take 10 weeks to get those 10 exposures, right? What we found is in reality, it'll take, uh, it won't be exactly 10 weeks. It'll be somewhere around 10 weeks. It could be eight, it could be 12, you know. But if you go the other direction, you take somebody like me, and I tend to peak in about six exposures if I'm doing one microcycle per week. Now, if I double that and, and go with the ABAB program, it'll be, by the math, it should be three weeks you know, to get my six exposures. But what I found is that it'll really be more like four weeks and, you know, seven or eight exposures. So there's, there is a math to it all, but always remember that you're dealing with a, with a biological system that doesn't really care about your math. You know, uh, it gets you close, but you've always got to tune it to, to that lifter's response. You know, I, I know, uh, Martin, um, I always mess up his last name, Martin Bingeser. Bingeser, yeah, you got it. Yeah, all right. Martin Bingeser talks about uh, peaking. I, I want to say in around thirty sessions himself. You know, and if you talk to him about the details of it, it does vary a little bit. You know, one one block might be twenty eight, another might be thirty two, but it's always right around that thirty session mark. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a there's a standard deviation either side because I think yeah, I think with so with. Again, with uh, Sophie Hitchkin, it was like, I'm already sure it was between 30 and 36, with like 33 being like her sweet spot. Sure. And it's going to depend on the athlete. How willing are they to to hold all these other variables in their life constant? Um, and then you can screw it up, too. Like, for me in this latest training block that I've been on, I'm pretty sure I've messed it up. <laughs> like, I'm supposed to, I typically will peak in about six exposures for this type of training block that I'm running. Uh, before this, 
you should precede all of your development cycles with a, a pivot or a washout. Mm. Um, between the holidays and traveling and, and whatnot, I knew that there was no way I was going to be able to start a development cycle in the middle of all that. So I extended my, my pivot block. Uh, and I changed it in some ways to help me maintain my strength a bit better, but I think it messed up. Uh, part of what you're trying to accomplish with a pivot block is to restore your adaptiveness, mm-hmm. you restore your ability to adapt to, to training. And I think I messed that up. Well, could, could, you, this, well, could you give us an example of what, 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 what would you usually prescribe there in the pivot block? Um, so just, the pivot what, block tends to be kind of a catch-all mm. a, a lot of times. So the, the one thing that you're trying to do is to let fatigue dissipate yeah. and restore your adaptability. Uh, you're also trying to maintain your strength as much as you reasonably can while still accomplishing that first goal. And then, oh, by the way, let's also make sure that you're you know healthy and, and staying put together as a lifter. Uh, I know with powerlifting training – we tend to ignore a lot of, of different movement patterns and movement types and things like that in our normal development blocks in pursuit of a better sport result. So the pivot block becomes a great time to make sure that you're doing things like single leg work and uh, make sure that you're doing enough rowing and you know just all the other things that you do to keep a lifter healthy. Uh, a lot of times those things will be more prominent in a pivot block. So typically, you've got a reduction in intensity for your competition lift. So the competition lift's still present, but the intensity is a lot lower. Uh, so one thing that I'll do, I may have a lifter switch like from a low bar squat to a high bar squat. So it's still extremely similar, but uh, it affects the weight on the bar a little bit. Uh, it helps to reduce the weight on the bar. Uh, also, and then also, I'll, also takes stress off elbows as well. Yeah, it'll. That's a, a thing, especially with your bigger lifters. Uh, that's that's really useful. Mm. Um, gets them a bit more vertical in the squat, which you know can be helpful for spines and whatnot as well. Uh, and then we're reducing the intensity. We'll have them doing sets of ten. Um, you know, the RPE can still be high for a few sets. But you don't want it to hide for too many sets because that accumulates fatigue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you'll have a couple sets that, at a decent RPE, um, and then from there, you know, it can be so many different things. Um, one thing that we'll do is have them do some slow tempo work, uh, like five seconds down, three second pause, and then zero on on the concentric. Uh, the idea there being that uh, we want to better balance the the strength and elasticity in the connective tissue, uh, hopefully preventing some tendon injuries or muscle belly injuries, uh, because you can get tendon or muscle belly injuries uh, if there's, uh, uh, how would you say it, I guess like an asymmetry in the the strength to elasticity in your your, uh, tendons versus, if the tendon is stronger than the or the tendon is stiffer than the muscle is strong, then the muscle is forced to be the shock absorber, and that's that's not a good thing. So anyway, long way around to saying that uh, including some slower tempo work for a power lifter can be helpful. Um, doing things that are out of the, the sagittal plane. Yeah. Um, 
you know, lots of things like that. But overall, keeping the fatigue, uh, keeping the stress of those workouts down, uh, that's what you want to do during those pivot blocks. Uh, uh, Mike, just going back, <clears throat> then, going back then to um, like an actual d- developmental cycles, um, just with like the, um, maybe maybe you did say this and I just missed it. Just again, going back to let's say to whether it's A B A A B A B or A B C D, um, how like what are the typical percentages there for lifters? As I remember last week, on you were talking about, you know, you were saying that you'd all like there were some lifters that respond very well to like that single at ninety percent, like on a regular basis, where other lifters didn't. Like um, so just in terms of like the volumes and intensities through this bonder truck model. Like, are you ever strained very far away from 90% or like how are you handling that? And I suppose it's going to be specific to the lifter as well. But uh, like yeah. how, how, how high are these intensities in these blocks? And also within the sponder truck system, like how did you fluctuate volume and intensity? Did you, did you still stick with your kind of RTS model of volume intensity blocks alternating? You, you can do that. Um, but again, you're going to, you're going to start formulating a picture of transference. And at that point you want to lead into the competition with the thing that's going to transfer the best, um, which, yeah, for most powerlifters, that's going to be higher intensity work, but not all of them. Um, and, and that's a, a key difference. I mean, you, you see this trend as far as, uh, powerlifting programs progressing, toward higher intensity as you get closer to the meat because it does work for most lifters. But man, if you're one of the lifters that that doesn't work for, then, you know, there's good news because you don't have to do it that way. Um, I've got one lifter who is kind of my go-to example for, for guys like this. Uh, his name's Mike Garazzo and I've been working with him for a few years now. And one thing about him is that Uh, We would train for these competitions and even in the competitions where he would do well, it was still never quite as well as we had hoped. The results would always fizzle uh, as we get near the end of this training block. And, you know, we could never figure out why. Well, when we started doing uh, this, uh, you know, emerging strategy kind of system, we noticed that, hey, it's actually the high intensity stuff. Whenever we do high intensity, that's when we start to run into problems. And that's a great example of what I'm talking about as far as reducing the the noise to signal ratio. Um, By simplifying things, we were able to see this relationship and say, oh, it's the high intensity work. That's what's getting you beat up. And we noticed that whenever we kept him more in the middle intensity zone, you know, had him doing sets of five and six and whatnot, he was getting so strong. So we thought, well, <laughs> why, why would we do something that's going to leave you beat up going into the competition? Let's not do that. You know, the, the answer seems almost self-evident at that point, you know, that we uh, had him go into a competition having done nothing heavier than a, a set of six at a nine RPE. So like a seven RM weight and, uh, you know, what that's probably about 80% haven't haven't handled nothing heavier than that for, you know, maybe two months before the competition. And he went into that competition and smashed personal best lifts. Uh, Sorry. How Uh, how many, how many wrestles you do with that 80%? Uh, six reps at a nine RPE. I'm guessing that it's, that's around 80%. Uh, 
Oh, he, uh, oh, it's he, he, be, was, he was. And six was as low as he went, Mike. Yeah, that was as wow. heavy as he went. Wow. Yeah. Because no, I, I, mean, I, I know, I know. Sorry to cut across. You just say it's for. Uh, no, no. Because I know in the in the Shaco model, what Kevin Can had told me is that like they rarely go near ninety percent. Um, even like coming to competition, and he said what Shake yeah. what Shake will do instead is instead of like doing like singles at like ninety, ninety two and a half percent, or whatever. He'd prefer you did like a double at eighty five percent. He's like that double at eighty five percent is is basically harder than doing a single at ninety or ninety two and a half. He felt, and yeah. so that's kind of how they kind of got around that. But sure, it's just interesting to hear that too. But you, like hearing a six RM, geez, that's like that's uh, that that, yeah. that that would challenge a lot of sort of um, conventional wisdom in terms of specificity, wouldn't it? <laughs> certainly, certainly does that. You know, and so again, I mean, don't and, get me and, wrong, and, and, it wasn't and, and, perfect. And, and this is going back to your specificity versus transparency now. Yeah. For sure, yeah. You know, it, it didn't matter too much to him because he was much stronger in that situation and was able to to display it at the meet. Now, it, it leads you to a different problem. You know, having done nothing heavier than a set of six and a nine RPE, uh, how do you do attempt selection with that? You know, well, mm-hmm. that was a bit of an adventure, and that's a different problem that we ended up needing to solve. Um, but at this point, we had the information. So the thing that we ended up doing later on last year was uh, we would – so we, we talked about the uh, one microcycle week ABCD program and said that that's kind of the place I like to start. Uh, and you can go the other direction and go more frequently. The, that's the ABAB program. You can also go the other direction and go less frequently. Uh, and that will extend the the peak, you know. So that's what A B C D E F G H, <laughs> something like that. Um, at any rate, it's it's one microcycle. It's eight workouts, so it spans the it spans two weeks, you know. So one week would be the lower intensity work that he really thrives off of. The other week would be the higher intensity work that I needed to do a better job of his attempt planning. And it worked out to something else strange about this individual lifter is that his time to peak ended up being different between the two intensities, uh, which is not always typical. Uh, But anyway, by pairing these two uh, together in, uh, call it an A week and then a B week, if that's not too confusing, I guess, um, it ended up being a, a training cycle of about four to five weeks, if I remember correctly. Um, it was about two exposures to the heavier singles. And yeah, it must have been five weeks because it's two exposures to the heavier singles and then three exposures to the lighter work that he really built his strength off of. So it was just enough of the heavier work to give us an idea of where his top end was. Uh, but not so much that it really caused him to get beat up. And it was enough of the uh, really good work that he uh, developed his strength with that we were able to continue on this upward trend of strength as we went into the competition. You know, we wouldn't want to do that all the time year round, but that's kind of the pre-competition training block that we'll build for this particular athlete. Makes me think about training residuals too and that like, he seems to be able yeah. to, he seems to be able to handle and need that volume early coming into competition, um, uh, you know, uh, and whereas like other people like they wouldn't be able to, to, to dissipate that fatigue or, 
you know, it, it's just it's just going into that like just that individual difference in terms of training residual and fatigue times and decay times yeah. and retention of fitness qualities. It's uh, that's one area I'm really fascinated by is training residuals. And uh, I remember on a previous episode with Dr. Greg Half, he was like, to him, training residuals are like the holy grail of of training in terms of trying to determine where everyone is at in terms of um, you know, where they're uh, they're basically their where their peak is at in terms of the decay of their fatigue and the retention of their fitness. And again, I suppose in the, in the larger scheme of this whole conversation, that's really what Bonnetrick was trying to discover with seeing these trends and, and trying to find out these individual peaking times in terms of like, when, when is this, when is this person like at their perfect level of not only preparedness, but readiness. And that's actually an interesting concept too, is preparedness and readiness because preparedness is sort of like the chronic training load, whereas readiness is like that day to day fluctuation and trying to merge those yeah. per- perfectly on, that one day where it needs to happen because you could your preparedness could be great but the day of competition your readiness could be off due to just an acute factor you know whereas you know if you had another 24 hours to help yeah. recover you might be perfect you know so yeah, it's just all fascinating training residuals preparedness um, yeah. or uh, uh, yeah, preparedness versus readiness and then obviously the monitoring system trying to find these trends and people but uh, and just uh, just for anyone who's listening here if you think we're kind of going all over the place so I actually <laughs> the, 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 this is exactly what I wanted so you know again this coming off the essay that I have the the physiological adaptations and, and determinants of maximum strength training and powerlifters. So I'm really really like I just wanted to give an overview of the essay and then talk about the determinants. That wasn't really why I got, got Mike on, but just give some context. And then what I wanted to get Mike on for was to talk about some of the potential you know programming organization strategies he may use to help somebody who's already pretty elite to to to, to get even more elite if you like. So again, like as I mentioned, kind of. It was jokingly, but I was serious too. It was like, how do you fucking make Blaine Sumner even better? Yeah. And this is why I wanted Mike to get into this whole uh, conversation on, on him applying the monitoring model because this is how he is going about it. So it, just to uh, bring all this episode around for this, this is why we're going through all this. So uh, <laughs> in case people are like, hold on, you know, starting off talking about this essay and then I went into this whole monitoring. This, this is why. Like, it's, 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 it's exactly where I saw this podcast going. So. But anyway, well, that's yeah. good. That's just rambling on. So no, it's <laughs> it's kind of no, it's you know, it's <laughs> you know, it's absolutely great. So it is. Um, yeah. So I mean, Mike, is there like currently where you are with your thought process? What uh, is there any sort of little tweaks or is there anything else? No doubt, there's other things floating in your mind. Um, but like, is there anything else you're kind of thinking about experimenting with within this, or is there any not even within the monitoring models? Is there anything else you're thinking about experimenting with? Yeah, well, I feel like it's a pretty good system for teasing out uh, what works best for the for the individual. Mm. And and if I can expand on that a little bit, now we'll come back to to kind of where to go next uh, in a second. But that's a question that comes up: like, how does it how does it show you uh, what you're going to respond best to? Well, we talked about keeping the stimulus the same. And that simplifies uh, the the training response. Um, what you can do at that point, if you're monitoring your progress, which you absolutely should be, uh, you you have to do uh, to use this method. I would say um, you're monitoring your training progress, and you're you're seeing how well things are going. And then when things dip at the end, uh, that's when you end that development cycle and, and you're, you'll settle into a time to peak, you'll get to know the athlete and, and this is how long they take to peak and so on. Um, once you know that, 
let's say that you're training somebody uh, for the biggest competition of their year. You know, it doesn't matter what it is, but big major competition. Well, you go back through, uh, we've been calling them block reviews. At the end of each training block, we, uh, in the software that we run on the RTS site, uh, they're logging their training there. So we go in and run a block review. And that gives us a snapshot of what that training block was like and uh, what their results were. So they're training for a big major competition. You can probably the first way to go about it is to go back and pull all these block reviews and you pull all the best ones. Say these are your, <clears throat> your best training blocks. And here are the common themes that we see, you know, and that gives you a, a good starting point as far as painting a picture for you, as far as what that athlete responds best to. Um, probably the, the next level that we're going to take that is something that I've been calling a, a meta block review, which is just to say, instead of cherry picking the best training blocks, let's take all of the training blocks and systematically search for commonalities, you know, instead of looking at your best training blocks and say, Hey, all these include pin press. Let's look at all the training blocks that include pin press and see what kind of results there are. Because maybe your best training blocks include pin press, but maybe pin press uh, turns out to be very volatile. Maybe the training blocks either great or, or really terrible. Um, and who knows, maybe, maybe it's not a complete picture to just look at the very best ones. And, I'm bringing that up to say the way that this helps you figure out what the athlete responds best to is not through a scientific falsification sense. Okay. It's not like you're only training, changing one variable at a time and you're carefully controlling all, all the potential confounders and you know, that you're, uh, <clears throat> you're not trying to falsify ideas. You know, that's not how it works. It works more in a, a Bayesian inference sense that you're never 100% certain that pin press is the thing for you. You start with uncertainty and you get gradually more certain the more data points you can add to it. Okay. So it's not, it, you just have to get comfortable to some degree with knowing that you're not going to be certain about anything, but you also have to know that you were never certain about it before. You just thought that you were, <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's getting used to that idea, you know? So that's kind of how we go about figuring out the things that we respond best to as far as kind of where, what do I want to investigate next? Part of it is this this idea of the meta block review. I want to expand on that. And that's going to I feel like that's going to tell us a lot. It's going to start to paint a picture for, you know, what does the athlete respond best to? But also, where do we need to take our experimentation? If you're looking at a, a lifter and you see that you've only tried, you know, mid range intensities with this lifter. Uh, and, yeah, they've gotten good responses, better responses with sets of four than with sets of six. Okay, that tells you something, but maybe you need to get out of this mid-range intensity thing and start experimenting with something a bit more far-ranging, you know, or, you know, it, it, it gives you a better overview 
of all the things that you've tried so far, you know? Yeah, so uh, one kind of last thing I definitely want you to touch on too is your incorporation of the exercise classifications of Bonner Truck. How, how is that looking within, like, are you are you using, like, I know Bonner Truck basically had uh, an exercise from each classification within every session that he done, like, if that session was either done in one go or throughout yeah. the day. Like, are you are you taking uh, an exercise from each one of those classifications and putting those into every session, or are you spreading those out throughout the weekly cycle? I would say that they're in each microcycle for the most part. Mm. Um, and to be honest, you, you were kind of prescribing that anyway to a degree, because even if, if, yeah. you're, if you're using classification of competition assistance and supplementary it's it's very sort of uh yeah. you know equivocal or similar to to Bonnetrick's classifications yeah I, I would say the general gets skipped a lot um and as you increase the frequency uh you do run into some practical limits yeah uh, so like i said you couldn't you couldn't do one microcycle per training session just because that's so much work you know you would do the competition lifts and that would be all um, and I don't think that that works very well. Um, but one thing that you, so I was talking about Liz's ABAB program. One thing that you'll see with that is that we don't do a supplemental lift for the squat. So that in, in the Bonner truck classification, that would be your, uh, special preparatory exercise. Yeah. So, uh, things like lunges and stuff like that, that tends to disappear for the squat. Uh, relatively quickly just because you're doing some form of, of actual squatting every day, you know, and there's just not time or energy left over for additional, uh, additional movement slots. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 So that, that's kind of where, yeah, that's kind of where those like little tweaks would, would need to be made. Like I could see that too nearly in sprinting in terms of, you know, trying to preserve some, some like neural, um, neural fatigue, you know, or like you're trying to, yeah, like try not to expand energy in areas that would have less sort of transferability or basic just carry over. Um, you know, you want to sort of preserve that adaptive reserve for things that will have a larger transfers. Yeah. 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 That, that makes sense. So uh, Mike, uh, so it's like we're, we're going on about an hour and a half here now. So we'll, we'll wrap <laughs> up just, uh, um, just for the listeners, tell us what's new at RTS, and also for the Irish and European uh, listeners, you're you're coming back to Ireland too um, for the European Powerlifting Conference with uh, with Danny and with Garben, um, and this yeah. year and this year it's actually going to be in Dublin. So maybe just fill us in on what's new at RTS, what uh, what what speaking engagement seminars have you got coming up, and um, also with RTS, uh, is there any new projects? Fill us in on like RTS classroom and stuff. Is there anything new going on sure. there? How's just basically what's 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 going on with Big Mike in 2018? <laughs> well, I'm I'm really excited to be coming back to, to Ireland for the uh, APC in 2018. Um, I was hoping for that. I had such a good time, just a really amazing trip uh, last year that I was uh, not really joking when I said <laughs> said that I was going to be trying to get. Gar and Danny to invite me back next year, and thankfully they did. Yeah. So I'm um, coming back. Um, I don't know. I don't know how much they've said publicly about uh, topics and whatnot, but I'll go ahead and say that uh, I'm planning to speak about these types of topics. Uh, I I did kind of a 
an overview of emerging strategies uh, last year, and then um, this year we did we did another one, and I've actually got it posted on my uh, YouTube channel. Sweet. Um, so if anyone's kind of interested in this sort of emerging strategies kind of thing, um, I talk about talk about it some more <laughs> in this talk uh, on our right. YouTube channel. So I want to get into some more detail and I'm not sure exactly where I'm going to take it yet. Uh, we still got some months to figure that out. Um, but I want to get some more in, into some more detail on how to use this training style, uh, and, and how you can make it work for you. Um, so I'm going to be talking something about that, uh, at the EPC in 2018 and, and I'm really excited about it. It's going to be fun. Um, as far as RTS goes, we just released uh, some updates to the online tools that that we have. Um, by the way, these tools are free for anybody who wants to use them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I always laugh because every time you go, <laughs> these are free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, I'm, it's I just, nice I, that I, people I just, tell I, me. I, you know, just, like, just so you know, the reason why they're free is because Mike's trying to get more data. <laughs> well, there, yeah, there is a. Uh, no, but, there but is I mean, that, but, but I mean, sure. that's, that's, no, no, I mean that. In, I, sorry, I, I, that sounded like, uh, like I'm saying that as, in, as if that's like a, a bad thing or, or, or a manipulative thing. No, I mean that's an amazing thing because I mean, you're tr like, I mean, the more data, the better because that's. I, I, I don't know if I said this to you. I, I was talking to Dr. Paul Comfort earlier on today the podcast with him, and you know, he's a massive researcher in terms of strength conditioning and sports science and. Like the one, the one sort of huge thing with all of our research in terms of strength and sports science is our subjects, our, our subject numbers are always tiny and our data numbers are tiny in comparison to like medical research. So, like the more data points you can get yeah. on something like that, like get up to thousands, like the more yeah. the, more legit it's going to make. So, uh, no, I, I meant that purely in a commendable way. Yeah, well, well, thank you, but uh, it's it's a wouldn't it be cool if you could go on this website? And it would say, hey, for people like you, of your height and your build and your background. You need your, this woman history. in your life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, pretty, so, I'm pretty sure there is websites that do that. Much. It's a dating, dating program for powerlifting training. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and so, yeah, that would be cool. And, and I suppose that's probably the the main thing we didn't even touch on like all the personality stuff and, and things like that. But, you know, that's probably the next thing that I want to learn the most about is like, if we have a process for individualizing training, um, how do we get a better starting point, uh, so that there's less trial and error, you know? Uh, and it, so yeah, more data is definitely going to help, uh, with answering that question for sure. Um, but then beyond that, you know, there's these tools are out there um, and they're designed to help you answer these questions as far as what do you respond best to. Uh, so like I was talking about pulling block reviews, uh, that's that's on here. Like our athletes use the it's the same free system. Um, you know, they log their training there and then the coach goes in and, and runs a block review, which you can do yourself, you know, and then. At the end, uh, when you're writing your training for some important competition, you pull all your block reviews and, and take a look at that. Uh, we'll be putting meta block reviews on there, you know, sometime in the near future. There's training planning tools that will help you like analyze your past training 
and help you predict what weights you need to put on the bar for this next training session. Um, there's recovery tracking tools, body weight tracking, all manner of different tools that are out there and available. Um, to get to it, you just go to reactivetrainingsystems.com. Uh, you log in and click on apps, and you're there. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's I'll put, I'll put all that. that. I'll, I'll put all that into the show notes. Uh, and Mike, and Mike um, in terms of just uh, uh, RT Classroom and then also the online coaching, what's going on there? Um, let's see. For Classroom, uh, there's not we're, – we're currently running uh, Classroom Microcycles right now, which is all about how to build and develop uh, a great training microcycle, uh, build and execute a, a great training microcycle. Uh, so as you can tell from from this conversation, that's really the building block of of any training system is the, the microcycle, the the training session. You've got to be able to build and execute that before you can do anything else. Um, <clears throat> so that's ongoing now, and and I don't think I mentioned it's it's an online class. Uh, so we teach it through uh, video, and then we've got uh, discussion groups. And uh, there's homework involved, uh, optional, of course. But but uh, uh, the aim is for it to be interactive and educational, uh, really aimed at people who are either uh, writing their own training or writing training for others. Um, you know, it's, it was kind of like, what would I have wanted, <laughs> you know, if I was uh, – um, you know, a, a young lifter who did, I never really wanted a coach cause I always wanted to tinker with it myself. Um, so what would I have wanted, you know, um, rather than, than coaching? Well, something like this would have been a lot closer to, to what I, uh, would have wanted. So I'm, I'm hoping that it's the same for other self-coached, uh, tinkerers like myself. Um, great stuff. And I see, I see now you have nutrition coaching on your, on your online coaching. Yeah, yeah, we do. Uh, we do offer nutrition uh, as well. Um, That's great. Just for listeners, I, I just for listeners, I got coached by Mike for six months, and not only did I get fucking strong and shit, but I learned a ton. So I, I saw it as almost six months <coughs> of a mentorship. So uh, it was fantastic. Well, thanks, thanks. We've and we've changed a lot even since uh, since working with you. Um, mm. So one. Thing, and, I, and I hope I'm not dragging this on too no, much. No, no, far ahead. Um, one thing that we see, like the way that we view coaching is like three fundamental components to being a good coach. Uh, leadership, relationship, and creativity. A coach, and they're all three interrelated. You know, you can't do one without the other. Um, a coach has to be a, a good leader. That's you know why they're a coach. <laughs> you know, it's up to them to to make the decisions and guide uh, the lifter through this whole process. Um, and that's built on a foundation of relationship, uh, interacting with uh, the the lifter, interacting with the athlete, and and getting to know them. Because like like we say, when we talk about these things in general terms, the answer is always it depends. But it depends on something. And there is a real answer out there for a specific individual. Uh, so the answer a lot of times lies in this relationship level, you know, so you have to cultivate a good relationship. And then the last aspect is creativity. A coach has to be a creative problem solver. Uh, if you're not, then, you know, really, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know, um, if, 
if the problem is simple or doesn't require uh, thought to solve it, then you can solve it with a book or a, a static program or something. You know, you don't need a, a human in the loop, so to speak. Uh, but we know that, you know, training is a complicated problem and it does require creative solutions. Uh, it doesn't always necessarily mean wild imagination, but it's definitely creativity in the sense that it's, it's something that's not just sitting there out of the box. Um, so all three of those things have to exist in a balance. Um, <clears throat> and we've been in the process of, of really going through all of our processes and trying to see what are our weaknesses as coaches? Like, what are we good at? I think we're pretty good at the, the leadership, uh, the leadership and the creativity part are probably our strengths. Uh, so what are our weaknesses? Well, I, I guess that leaves relationship. Uh, so what can we change about our processes to, to form better relationships with our athletes, you know? And, uh, we've been going through all this stuff and, and kind of revamping a lot of our processes. And, and so far I think the results have been really great. And if, if spending a little bit more effort on developing a, a better client relationship leads to a better training outcome, then, I mean, that's, that's what it's about. You know, that's, that's better for everybody, you know? So sorry, I didn't mean to swerve over into a, <laughs> to no, a no. philosophical about coaching, but listen, you're so, you're the you're the guest here, pal. You take as much much time as you want. Pal, <laughs> any, any, anything you like, I'm just facilitating a great conversation here. But it's so true, though, in terms of uh, that's one thing I really took away at my time at Altus was that probably the most important factor. And actually, it's not even probably because according to Mark Strickland, who who's the psychologist that works with a lot of the athletes there, he uh, he kept referring back to this, and, and he and I, I didn't I haven't personally looked into this yet, but he, he claims that there is a, a good bit of literature to support this. Uh, like the number one most important factor between any successful relationship, be that marriage, friends, uh, coach, an athlete, uh, a manager, and a team is trust. So absolutely, yeah. uh, the more you can obviously build that relationship with the athlete you're working with, it's it, it can do nothing but only help increase the successful program. Yeah, you know it. it it's like, should I move up or down a weight class? Well. I don't know, <laughs> you know, like there's so much that goes into that, into that question, you know, well, as a coach, you should know, you should have something to say about this, you know, yeah. Yeah. and it's got to be formed on an understanding of not just what's best for the athletes training, but what's best for their life. Like, are they trying to be the best powerlifter that they can possibly be? Or is this, you know, where does this rank in their priority list? Yeah. You know, there, there's that aspect of it. But then for a lot of people uh, that we coach, they're professionals in this field as well. So, like, yeah, there's the uh, uh, things that they could do to be a better lifter, but this also affects their business, you know. So we want to be uh, cognizant of those factors as well. So you don't know any of that stuff until you get to know the lifter. Mike, just wrapping up here, uh, just a yeah. pure, a pure, a pure spontaneous, or not spontaneous, well, it's spontaneous, but just a completely random question here. What uh, books or books are you reading right now? You said what books am I reading? Yeah, what books, <clears throat> book or books are you reading right now? Honestly, I, I've not been reading a lot of books lately. I've been getting pretty deep into into podcasts and, and whatnot. So, uh, what podcast are you listening to? 
Uh, well, yours. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else? Uh, yeah, uh, let me let Mar me look. Mar I'll find something. Hammer, Hammer Media, listen to that. Yeah, yeah, I like I like Hammer Media. Um, <clears throat> so one thing about me is that uh, I, I tend to. I've got a three-year-old, so the evening times are not quiet uh, by any stretch. So I don't get a lot of time to, to sit and read. So a lot of my reading time is, is either audiobooks uh, in the car while I'm driving or um, um, uh, podcasts and, and things like that. But yeah, Hammer Media a lot. Um, I've been listening to uh, uh, Kabuki Strengths uh, yeah, podcast okay. a bit yeah, as yeah. well. Christopher, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Danny's uh, podcast, uh, Sigma Sigma Nutrition, and then also the Sigma Powerlifting podcast. I like that one. Um, yeah, yeah. I suppose I suppose a responsible business owner should say that I've got my own podcast as well. I I don't personally uh, <laughs> listen to our episodes because I'm there when we record them. Uh, <laughs> But uh, that also exists in case anybody uh, cares to give it a listen. Yeah, it's a fantastic resource. You did, you did an absolutely amazing uh, episode with yourself and Eric there last year. And you got into yeah. some, you got into some great training concepts. I really enjoyed that because um, whenever whenever the, the whenever I go down to the facility where I train at, usually during the day there's no one there because it's it's only a small facility. I always listen to a podcast as I train, so. I, uh, I get to kill two yeah. birds with one stone. I remember listening to that as a trans. Like, this is a really good podcast, and I sent you a message. <laughs> I, I sent you a message after saying uh, yeah. that it was really good. Just uh, actually a funny thing for the listeners too. Uh, I met Mike in person for the first time last year, and I went up to him and uh, and obviously like Mike had a lot on in terms of presentations and all like that. And I went up and I was like, Mike Robbie. And uh, Mike didn't put two and two together, even though it was, oh, it was me. <laughs> I gave you the the most blank stare, like. Who? Oh yeah, yeah. You, you were like, uh, okay, oh, yeah. Yeah. you were like Robbie, good for you. And then it was only like, <laughs> it, it was only later on, like I said something about Derek Evie to you, and you were like Robbie, and it's like, oh my god. And then it's just like you get like, you're like <laughs> yeah, yeah. They like charge yeah. down like five seats, step beside me, and it was like boom, talking about that. Oh, and, right. I'd say, I, I, as I said in the audience, and you were like, you know, I listened to Robbie Works podcast with Derek Evie, and this inspired all this. I was like, I inspired this presentation. <laughs> I feel, did. I feel so proud. For but sure, uh, yeah. yeah, no, that's great, Mike. But, we'll we'll, we'll uh, wrap it up there, and uh, I'll put everything in the show notes. So this was fantastic, and uh, I definitely want to get you back on to expand a little more into again Bonner Chuck yeah. and a little more into like I just love, I just love nerding, nerding out talking about like all China. <laughs> And, yeah, well, uh, clearly that could go on for hours. So. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So listen, to everyone listening, guys, another absolutely fantastic episode with Mike Tashir. Make sure you go over to Reactive Training Systems. I'll have everything linked up in the show notes. Um, but for now, take care, be well, and stay strong. Mm -hmm.